0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon.
1: I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. First John, chapter two, seven through 17. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him.
0: Morning. 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 Thanks uh, Cheryl thank for reading, worship team for leading us. If you didn't know, we have a business meeting after church today, so I tried to go a little slow, shorter. We'll see how I do. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll have a good time studying God's word together. Uh, would you pray with me please? Then we'll get right into the text. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for you, Lord. You make uh, you make it all worthwhile. You're the reason we get up in the morning. You're certainly the reason we're here on a Sunday morning. It's because you're so good and merciful and kind and compassionate and uh, wonderful and beautiful and holy and all these things we sang about and a thousand more. Uh, we thank you for this passage and for this book, First John. We pray that you would open it up to our minds this morning. Holy Spirit, please illuminate the text uh, that we might understand it with our minds and then apply it with our hearts to know how we should live it out in our lives that's what we ask we ask it in the name of jesus christ our lord amen well last sunday the playoff game between the buffalo bills and the kansas city chiefs had one of the wildest endings you'll ever see to a football game it really did Kansas City, for those who don't pay attention to these kind of things, Kansas City was winning. They were winning the game with less than two minutes, or with two minutes. I guess at the two-minute mark, Kansas City was winning the game. But then Buffalo took the lead. This was a big playoff game uh, to see who gets to keep playing this week. Uh, Buffalo took the lead with a touchdown pass. Beautiful pass. Uh, That made the score, I think, uh, Bills 29, Chiefs 26. There's like a minute 54 left. It's like, oh gosh, time's almost out here. But then Kansas City got the lead back. They moved all the way down the field, got another touchdown of their own. They took the lead. Now there's just a minute and two. One minute, two seconds left. Buffalo got the ball. And believe it or not, Buffalo got a touchdown. So two touchdowns by the Buffalo Bills in less than two minutes. They They got another touchdown. They had the lead now. And there were 13 seconds. 13 seconds left in the football game. Now those of you who follow football know that 13 seconds is nothing. Right, that's hardly that's no time at all in a football game, especially when the other team just scored, and you've got to do the kickoff and all that kind of stuff. I mean, sometimes that can take 13 seconds, and, and so that's why a lot of uh, Kansas City Chiefs fans stopped watching the game. 13 <laughs> seconds. People started to leave the stadium, right, go out to the parking lot, beat the traffic. That whole thing. Uh, people at home started turning off their television sets. Thousands of Chiefs fans tuned out when they saw there was only 13 seconds left in the game. I read uh, a story in in a newspaper about a guy named Paul Helliker. He's a retired dock worker. Helliker's a long time Chiefs fan, loves the Chiefs. When Buffalo took the lead at 13 seconds, he got up, angrily turned the TV off, and went to bed. He's kind of one of those early to bed, early to rise kind of guys. Went to bed, tossed and turned all night. The article said he woke up every couple hours steaming over how the Chiefs had blown the game. He got up, put the TV on to catch the morning news, and he was shocked as the the people on the local news were talking about what a great win it was. And he thought, oh, that's just a cruel joke, right? They must be making some kind of a mistake. But it was no mistake, you know, because in that last 13 seconds, Patrick Mahomes moved that team all the way down the field, got within field goal range. They kicked the last second field goal. Kansas City won the the coin toss and scored right away. And that was it. The Chiefs won the game. Go Chiefs, right? Here we go. When Paul Heliker, the guy in the story, when Paul Heliker heard what had happened, imagine you're in this position, right? He's tossing and turning all night. When he heard the Chiefs had won, everything flipped. Everything changed. It was a total reversal for this guy. He felt a little bit of regret that he'd missed it, of course. Uh, but, But in that moment, his anger, his frustration turned to happiness. It turned to joy. We're looking at a longer passage this morning. Thank you, Cheryl, for reading all those verses. And I'm doing that on purpose. That long section Cheryl read for us, we, we could easily break that into smaller bits. We could actually, I could preach three different sermons, to tell you the truth, from the passage uh, Cheryl just read to us. And I'd certainly find lots to say. There's lots there. But I decided to take this larger section because taking it as a larger section shows us the change the change Jesus makes in our lives. When we come to Jesus Christ, everything flips. It's a total reversal, just like it was for those Chiefs fans who left the game and then found out that the team had won the next day. That's what Jesus does for us. He flips it all. He reorders everything. Starting with the things that we love. Starting with the things that we love and we care about. And that's really the focus of this longer section as we take it as a section. Uh, Today's passage teaches that Jesus commands us He commands us to reorder what we love. Jesus commands us to reorder what we love. Last week, uh, we're working through, if you're visiting today, we're working through 1 John. We're taking about a a dozen weeks to work through the first epistle of John here at the beginning of the year. And so last year, we covered verses 1 through 6 in chapter 2. And we talked about this important concept of being in Christ. We are in Christ. uh, We know Christ. We are therefore in Christ. And all of that's a way of of saying that we belong to Jesus. When we are saved, when we're born again, uh, we we are now in Him. We know Him. And that's such an important thing that in last week's passage, John told us how to know that, to know that we know him, how to know that we're in him. Uh, he gave us a test, and the test is that we keep his commandments. We do what Jesus says. We won't be perfect at it. That's why he talked about so much, so much about uh, forgiveness and, and repentance, but, but that's the basic test. Verse 4, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And that's where today's passage fits. I want to plug today's passage right into last week's because it comes right after it. Right, it makes sense. Uh, In this passage, there's a command. There's a couple of smaller commands, but they they fall under this broader command to reorder what we love, to change the things that we love. And so we're going to look at verses seven through seventeen, and I'll break it into three sections. We'll kind of take them section in sections. Uh, And so one part is verses seven through eleven. And like I say, it could do its own sermon, but we're going to take it just as a part. And then part two is verses 12 through 14. And then part three is verses, excuse me, verses 15 through 17. And in each of these sections, just looking at each one, each one shows us an important lesson. So we have three lessons this morning about Christ's command to reorder what we love. This change, this total reversal he wants to make in our lives and wants us to respond to by cooperating with him in it. We are to make, uh, we are to reorder what we love. Three lessons. So let's take a look at these three lessons. For the first lesson, I actually want to jump into the middle of the passage. So I'm going to confuse you a little bit. Hopefully not, though. But um, for point one, I want to look at section two. I want to look at verses 12, 13, and 14. I want to start there. And the first lesson, the lesson of those three verses, is that this command to reorder what we love is for all of us. It's for all uh, believers. That's the point of verses 12, 13, and 14. So let me read them again. John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So you have six statements, six statements there. And the six statements are addressed to three groups of people. Or at least that's how it looks at first. It looks like they're three different groups. And so he, he's talking to children, and he's talking to fathers, uh, and he's talking to, uh, to young men. That's, that's what it says. And there's a, a cycle to it, and so he repeats it. And so he talks to each of those groups twice. So children, fathers, Young men, children, fathers, young men, right? That, that's what he has there. And he says a different thing to each one, right? He, and he has these, there's a little bit of repetitions, a couple of things he repeats, uh, but he, he says different things to each of these groups. And it, and it kind of follows a formula. It's pretty structured. It's pretty poetic. I'm, I'm writing to you so-and-so, fathers, children, whoever, for this reason, I'm writing to you because you do this, or this thing is true about you. So that's kind of this, this pattern. So it's pretty structured. It almost, in fact, I'll bet your Bible sets it apart like poetry. Mine does, anyway. The ESV sets it apart, almost like you would, like if it was a psalm or something like that. Now, I've always wondered about this part of 1 John, right? I mean, I, when I you know, do a Bible through the year, I read 1 John, I always get to this part, and I'm like, what? What's, what's, what is that about? It, it really feels like it doesn't fit, Right? I think the technical term is a non-sequitur. That's that when, when you say something and it doesn't it seem to be connected to anything else. And, I've, and so I've always kind of struggled with this part. Maybe you have. <clears throat> but I read a suggestion this week. It's kind of one of the advantages of, of what I do. You know, I get to spend a few hours in a text, several hours in a text. And as I was studying this text, I, I read somebody else's suggestion that I think actually unlocks what's going on in 12, 13, and 14. And the suggestion was simply that this is John's greeting to the letter. It's John's greeting. It's the formal greeting. Now, he doesn't put it at the beginning, which is where you normally put a greeting, but that's John for you. John likes to move things around and, and think outside the box a little bit. That's uh, just one of the styles of his writing. Paul, when he introduces his letter, usually puts it at the beginning. But I think what we have here is John's greeting. And the, the reason, I, the strongest evidence for taking it that way is that that's what he's doing. right? He doesn't say who it's from, which you usually do in a greeting, but he does say, quite a lot, actually, who he's writing to, which is usually the most significant part of the greeting. Who's this letter to? Well, that's what John's telling us in 12, 13, and 14. He says, I'm writing this church to, to you, right? To, to little children, to the fathers, to the young, to the young men. So the answer, so, so who's he writing to, right? So if that's the greeting, it's going to tell us who he's writing to. Who's he writing to? And I think the answer is he's writing to everybody. He's writing to the whole church. That's the point of that structured section that you have there. And so he starts with little children, right? It's important that he starts with little children. Uh, I would submit to you that he is not singling out the youngest members of the congregation, right? When we kind of, on a straight th- read-through, we read that, we see little children, and he says, okay, now he's going to talk to all the people who are 12 and under, right? They're, 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 the, they're the little children. That, that's how it sounds to us, except that's not how he uses the term. I would actually submit to you that he's using the term in here in verse... Uh, what is it? We're in uh, 12. He's using the term in verse 12, uh, the same way he used it back in verse 1 of this same chapter, right? At the beginning of the chapter, he, he called them my little children. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. Uh, we didn't even consider the possibility last week that he was writing that stuff about sin just to the 12 and under set, right? We didn't, I didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to you. We, we understood that he was talking with a term of endearment. Uh, they were important to him. He cares about them. And so he calls them my little children. He'll do the same thing in verse 7. He'll call them beloved, beloved. And so what you see here, uh, John's not being patronizing, right? He's not looking down on them. But what he's saying is, is I care about you. I love you, right? That's how, that's the spirit with which he writes to them. And so in verse 12, he calls them my little children, verse uh, verse 13 there, he calls them children again. It's a different Greek word, but it's the same basic sense. Uh, he, he cares about them. Uh, here's why that's important. It's important because it means that the command to reorder our, our loves, <laughs> reorder what we love, comes in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Right? It's going to set the whole thing in, in its proper context for us. Uh, God is not, so John is not, but more importantly, God through John is not being harsh with us. He's not scolding us here in the things that he says to us. Instead, he's treating us like little children, right? his, his beloved children with kindness, compassion, gentleness. That's, that's the attitude here. So that's how I think we should take the little children. The children is his generic beloved, a term of endearment for the whole church. So what do you do with the other parts, the fathers and the young men? Well, I would, if I'm going to take little children as symbolic or as metaphorical, I'm going to take fathers and young men the same way. Uh, so I don't think he's just talking to dads and younger men who aren't dads yet. Right? That, that, that's almost what it sounds like. Uh, I don't think that's what he's doing. He's just talking to both ends of the timeline. He's just talking to old and young alike. That's the idea. And so he's talking to the senior saints, uh, he's talking to the newest saints, and he's talking to everybody in between. It's a poetic way of of bringing in and saying young and old alike. And so I take away from that that this is a command. These things he's writing here, this is a command for all of us. We're never too old, right? Fathers and mothers alike. Uh, We're never too old to stop checking in on what we love. Right? It's not like, well, I've, I've been a Christian for 50 years. I don't have to pay attention to this stuff anymore. No, it's a new season. Now we've got new things that tempt us to love them that we shouldn't be loving. And, 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 and that, that's that whole idea. And so uh, maybe we've walked with Jesus for 50 years or 60 years, but we still need to be examining our hearts along the, the other two things we're going to talk about this morning. Am I loving what Jesus wants me to love? Am I loving the way he wants me to love? It's, we never age out is my point, point. We never, or his, and I think it's his point. We never age out of what he's talking about here. And then, of course, younger people need to pay attention to it, too. And you can decide which category you fall in, or maybe, like me, you want to throw yourself in both. But uh, you're never so young that you don't have to pay attention to these things, right? And so those of you who are children, and those of you who are teens or young adults, uh, you need to pay attention to these things, too, right? We don't get a pass because we're young. God, you know, God doesn't work that way. He calls all of us to pay attention to this stuff all of us. And, and so if you're a believer, that, that, that's, that's the, my summation of this first point. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's the point of the because statements. So like I say, I could preach uh, an independent sermon on each of these sections. If I was only going to preach on verses 12 through 14, I would take you through those six because statements. But here's what unites all those because statements. Those are all things that are true about believers. We're the ones who have overcome the evil one. We're the ones in whom the word of God abides. We're the ones whose sins are forgiven. We're the ones who have known him from the beginning. Those are all things that are true about believers. And so if you belong to Jesus because he's in you and he's working in you, then pay attention to this stuff. Reorder what you love. Pay attention to to what you care about, what you love. That's lesson number one. The second lesson that this passage teaches us about this command is that Jesus, now we get to the, the two, two parts of the command, uh, Jesus commands us to start loving one another, right? When you come to Christ, here's the new agenda, start loving one another, right? So it's, it's the old way of putting ourselves first, we're done with that. Now we're to start loving one another. And, and that's what we see in section one. That's what we see in the first part of today's passage, verses seven uh, through 11, And uh, let me read the first two verses of that. We'll start with verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John starts out, like I said a minute ago, with Beloved right? So he reaches out to his, his readers, pulls them close. He says, beloved, right? I'm not scolding you. I'm not, uh, you know, talking down to you or anything like that. God loves you, right? So he pulls this in like beloved children. He says, beloved, I'm not writing you a new commandment. This is an old commandment. It's a commandment that's been around from the beginning, he says. That's verse 7. Uh, but then he says in verse 8, he's like, but it's a new commandment. It's, it's a new commandment. It's, and so it's both. The commandment he gives us in this text is both old and new, right? That's what he says in verses 7 and 8. And I'll, I'll explain more in just a moment how it's both old and new. We'll look at that piece in just a second. But first we have to ask, what is it? What is the new commandment? What is the new old commandment that he talks about there in verses 7 and 8? Because I was, you know, you think you know, you open it up, you start reading it, and you're like, oh, of course I know what it is. Uh, but then as I was studying the text, I realized he does not actually come out and tell us. He doesn't actually say in today's text what the new old commandment is. We can figure it out, I think, relatively easily, but he doesn't actually say. Uh, The reason we can figure it out is he tells us later. He tells us later in this book. uh, It's uh, chapter 3, so we're in 1 John chapter 2. In chapter 3, he tells us explicitly what the commandment is. So he says here in verse 7, I'm writing you this command that you've had from the beginning. It's an old commandment because you've had it from the beginning. Chapter 3, verse 11, this is the message you've had from the beginning, that we should love one another. So he doesn't tell us what it is explicitly in chapter 2, but he does tell us in the middle of the book. He tells us in chapter 3, this is the message you've had from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so that's the old new commandment that this whole section revolves around. Jesus wants us to start loving one another now that we are in him. And if you think about it, this is not out of the blue. It's not out of the blue at all. Uh, Jesus says something in the Gospel of John. Remember, John wrote both. John wrote the Gospel of John, and just a few years later, John wrote 1 John. Uh, In John chapter 13, verse 34, here's what Jesus says. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. So, He's pulling there from John. That it's right there. Now, this command, how is it both old and new? Let's look at that piece. Uh, the command to love one another is an old commandment, he says in verse 7. It's an old commandment in the sense that this is what's been true all along. Right? God wanted us to love one another all along, from the beginning. It goes all the way back. How do you think God wanted Adam and Eve to treat each other? <laughs> what do you think Cain was supposed to do to Abel? right? How was G- Cain supposed to treat Abel? It-, it goes all the way back, the call to love one another. In fact, love, love for other people is the ethical heart, you could say, of the Old Testament law. And, and my reason for saying is that, it- is that Jesus said it, right? So you remember when Jesus was asked, Jesus, what's the, and they were trying to trick him, but Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says the greatest commandment is love God and love people, It's love. The greatest commandment is love. Love God and love people. We call it the great commandment. It's found in Matthew 22. Uh, Jesus answers. This guy asks, what's the greatest commandment? And and his answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the command to love other people isn't a new commandment at all, John says. It's as old as the word itself, which is how he puts it, right? It's it's as old as the word itself. So it's an old commandment. And yet, verse 8, it's a new commandment. It's a new commandment, he says. And at first you're like, well, come on, John. You, know, you, you can't have it both ways. You know, and it almost sounds like he's contradicting himself, right? If you ever noticed that? It really does. It seems like he says it is old, but oh, wait, no, actually, it's new. Uh, but but it, both are true. And, and here's what he's saying. He's not contradicting himself. What he's saying is that the old commandment that's as old as time, as old as the word, the old commandment now finds new expression in the person of Jesus Christ. The old commandment finds new expression in the person of Jesus. And it's not just Jesus, but it's the people who follow Jesus. John 13, 34, new commandment I give to you, love one another. By this you will be known if you love one another. And so the new commandment is true. It's, it's a new commandment because it's been now, flesh has been put to those bones. Now we see it in the person of Jesus, but we also see it in the, in the people of Jesus which again is what he says in verse 8. This new commandment is true in him and in you. That's the sense of which it's new. Now it's all about Jesus. So it's an old commandment because we've had it forever, but it's a new commandment because now it's manifested in Jesus and his people. And then what John does in this, this paragraph is he takes this Uh, John has these themes he loves to work with. One of them is is love, love and hate. Uh, Another one is light and darkness. That's a big one for John, and he actually connects now love to the light darkness theme in his in his letter. And and he says there in the text he says darkness. It's verse eight. He says darkness is passing away, and in its place now there's light. He says the true light, true light of what? True light of Jesus actually go back to chapter 1, I believe it says it there, Uh, the true light of Jesus is already shining. Where is it shining? In us. It's shining in our lives. And that, John explains, is how we can love one another. We can love one another because Christ's light, uh, which probably is uh, symbolic for his love, his light, his love is in us, and that's how we can love one another, which is verses 9 through 11. I'm just going to summarize them, but let me read them so that we're thinking about them again. So the darkness is passing away. True light is already shining in us. And then he, he spells that out with darkness and light. He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Because hate is equals with darkness. Love is light. So whoever says he's in the light, I don't care what he says. If he hates his brother, he's still in darkness. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, lives in the light. And in him, in that person, there is no cause for stumbling. He's not causing sin or sinning himself because he's loving. But whoever hates his brother, back to the hate now, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. He's going to really pile it on here. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and he doesn't know where he's going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so there's this, um, he's stacking up the effects of the darkness. It's, it's, it's really ruined the person who hates. And, and so he, he's, he's got this sharp contrast going on. People who walk in the light of Jesus are people who love they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's going to spill over to other people, too, outside the church. We're even told to love our enemies, but it starts with loving one another. Right? So people who walk in the light are people who love their brothers and sisters, but people who hate their brothers and sisters are people who walk in darkness. So, and i move quickly through those verses for time's sake, but if I can boil it down, what is that all saying? What does Jesus want us to do? <laughs> he wants us to love one another. That's what verses 7 through 11 is saying. Jesus wants us to love one another because that's what happens when we walk in the light. And we're commanded to walk in the light. So when you walk in the light, when you know Jesus, when you're in Jesus, to take that language from verses 1 through 6, he reorders what we love. We don't put ourselves first and foremost anymore. Now we put others first. We love one another. And so he replaces in us the cold indifference and and I think that really is the sense in which hatred is being used here. Uh, in chapter three, in a few weeks, we'll look at a, a passage where John is going to get more practical about love. And when he describes love, he's going to tell us that love is helping people with practically need, practical needs. If anybody comes to you, and you, if anyone sees his brother in need and doesn't help him, he's failed to love. Is basically what it says in that passage when we get there. And I think that's going to define for us what hatred is. When he talks about hatred here in this chapter, a lot of times hatred we think you know. Hitler or Stalin or, you know, ISIS today or something like that. We think hatred is, that's what hatred is, and that's certainly hatred. But in this context, I think hatred is better defined as cold indifference. Cold indifference. Uh, just I don't, an attitude of, I don't care, right? I don't care what other people are dealing with. That's really more the idea. And what Jesus wants to do in us, what he wants to do in our lives, is he wants to replace cold indifference uh, with warm, practical, Christ-centered love. Uh, early in the 2nd the century, the 2nd century A.D., uh, so 100 years or so after Christ uh, rose again from the dead, uh, a man named Aristides, he was uh, a Christian, uh, Aristides of Athens was his name. Uh, Aristides wrote a treatise for the emperor. So the emperor at the time was Hadrian. So this is around 125 AD, Emperor Hadrian. And this Christian thing kept spreading. These Christians were getting more and more popular. And, and Hadrian was trying to wrap his brain around this new group and what was happening with them. And so Aristides wrote him this lengthy essay basically that's come down to us from history where he attempted to explain to Hadrian what what the Christians are all about and what makes them different from everybody else. Here's one paragraph of what Aristides wrote. It was the part about love, uh, trying to explain to the emperor, the pagan emperor, what's up with the Christians. Quote, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. Uh, They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God they love one another aristides wrote that's us that's christians when our faith is real that's what jesus is telling us to do and it's not just the ancient ones i always like to tell those ancient christian stories so we we remember we're not alone in this thing we're not uh, the first ones to the party but but it's still for us that call to love one another is still uh, true for us today and i might be biased. You know what I do for a living. I might be biased, but I believe the local church is where this happens best. It really is. Believers loving one another and taking care of one another, that happens best right here. It happens best in the context of a local church. That's why loving community is one of our five core values. It's that important. It's one of the most important things, and it, and it happens best here. You know, yeah, we can you know, send a donation you know, to believers on the other side of the globe, and we should send donations when there's needs and that sort of thing, but, but that's, that's arm's length or, or mar, where we really get to work this out and enjoy it and struggle through it is right in a local church. So keep doing it. Keep doing it, church. Keep uh, helping each other when there's a crisis. Keep taking care of each other when there's an illness or a new baby. Keep supporting each other when there's a, a financial need or a child care need or, or somebody needs a visit. You know, just someone to come and, and hang out with them for a little while and talk to them and listen to them and, and pray with them at the end of it. That's what Jesus wants us to do. He commands us to love one another. So that's what we're supposed to add. That's the part we add in this text when we become believers. Uh, God wants us to start loving one another. Uh, But that brings us to the third lesson, because it's not just about starting something, this reordering our loves that Jesus calls us to. It's not just that we start something. There's also something he wants us to stop. And that's what we get in verses 15 through 17. He also commands us to stop loving the world. So start loving one another. That's what we do as we become Christians, when we become Christians, and stop loving the world. So let me read those verses again. 15, 16, and 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, uh, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there's a sharp contrast There's a sharp contrast between this section and the section in verses 7 through 11, which was, like I say, why I took the bigger section. If we'd done these as three different sections, it would have been two weeks later. (laughs) But I think he wants us to see the sharp contrast between verses 7 and 11 and verses 15 through 17. And so here's something we should love, but here's something we shouldn't love. We shouldn't love the world. Do love each other, don't love the world. That's the basic command. Now, before we go any further, we have to ask, what are we talking about? Right? Before we can talk about those actual verses, we have to figure out what the world is. I mean, if you tell me, don't love the world, my question is going to be, what are you talking about? What is it I'm not supposed to be loving? Uh, and it's, it's not obvious, actually. If you look at the different ways the world, the word cosmos is what it is in Greek, the word world is used, uh, there's, there's different ways it's used, even in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's used to talk about the planet, right? That is a possibility, you know? And so we talk about the world as the planet we live in, live on, right? Planet Earth. And so that's one possibility. John's saying don't love the planet, right? And so don't enjoy nature, don't go for hikes in the summer, uh, don't clean up your trash, you know, don't, don't, just, you know, hate on the world, right? That's, that's, that's one possibility when he says do not love the world, uh, we're going to reject that one. I don't think that's what John means. That's not what he's saying. And my my biblical evidence for it doesn't fit the context for one thing. But biblically, we're actually told that we are stewards, right? It's Genesis one. You know, it's 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 planet one hundred and one in terms of how Christians think about these things. Uh, we are put here as stewards of the creation. And so God's God actually created us to take care of the creation, not to hate the creation. Okay. So so I think that's it. It's not the planet when he says uh, do not love the world. He doesn't. He's not saying. Do not love earth. Do not love the planet. Uh, another possibility, and it's off, the word's often used this way, another possibility is he's talking about people, right? So sometimes we'll use the word that way, you know, so the world, we don't mean the planet, we mean the people who live on the planet. All the nations, all the continents, Asia, Africa, North America, add them all up together, all the people, red and yellow, all the colors, all the ethnicities, everything, put it all together, that's the world. That's the world. Sometimes the word's used that way in the Bible. And so maybe that's what John is saying. Maybe John's saying, don't love the people. <laughs> don't love the people. Well, that can't be it, right? I, I heard those laughs. That can't be it either. Uh, and my, my proof is a little verse almost all of us know, John three sixteen. Uh, God so loved the world. And he's talking there, he's using the word in this sense. Uh, God so loved all those beautiful, wonderful, created in his image, but also sinful, fallen human beings who live here. He loved them. Here's how he loved them. He sent his one and only son for them that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So God loves the world in that sense. God loves the people. And so John can't be contradicting that. It's his own book, after all. It's John three sixteen, And so he's not telling us don't love the people. He's not telling us don't love the planet. So what is he telling us? What does he mean when he says do not love the world? And the answer is that John's using the word world in a, in a, in a technical way, really. I think that's, it's not wrong to put it that way. He uses the word world as a blanket term or a general term to describe the rebellious system, the whole sprawling rebellious system that stands in opposition to God and his way of doing things. That's what John means by the world. It's the rebellious system that stands in opposition to God. Uh, One scholar I was reading this week puts it this way. I thought it puts it well. Uh, The word world refers to, quote, the whole way of life resulting from the fall of humanity under the power of evil, whether organized into social institutions and power structures or practiced by individuals. right, so all of it. The media, the governments, the enemy, the devil. I could, you know, I could stack up a hundred things here. All of it. That's a, that's a scholar's definition. of The whole way of life resulting from the fall of humanity under the power of evil, whether organized into social institutions and power structures or practiced by individuals. John actually gives us... Uh, I need scholars, we need scholars, but John defines it for us right here in the text, and I think in a way that's more... Uh, We can connect to easier. John just simply defines it in terms of desires, right? Those those sinful desires. You see that in verse sixteen. When he goes to define the world, uh, he he uses a that is right for all that is in the world, and then you've got probably a dash. Here's what's in the world: the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, and I don't know about your Bible, mine has a little note that says that pride of life could also be pride of possessions, and I actually think that's a better uh, rendering of the word that's used there. Uh, pride, so it's the desires of the flesh, it's what we want in our flesh, desires of the eyes, you bring in covetousness, and envy, and lust, and those kinds of things, and, and then the pride of possessions, that, that craving for more, it's the stuff we desire. I think that's John's I I don't know if it's right to call it a definition, but it's his picture. It's his depiction of the world. The world is the things we want. It's all those things we want that stand contrary to. So want in and of itself isn't bad. Desire in and of itself isn't bad. Sexual desire is a wonderful thing in the context of marriage. But outside of it, outside of the bounds of what God says, it's, it's bad. And so it's all the stuff we want in place of or in opposition to faithfulness to God. And so money... Uh, Pleasures, entertainment, sex, romance, achievement, power, control, that and more, that's the world. And God says, don't love that. Do not love this rebellious world system. And just in case we don't believe him, we're kind of like, well, why not? Well, John gives us reasons. He actually gives us two reasons here why we must not love the world. The first one's in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right, so if you love the world, you don't love the Father. It's, it's uh, the love of the Father, love for the Father, same way as we talked about last week, if you remember talking about that. So it's not that God doesn't love you. God does love you, but you don't love him. All right, so if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have both. I think that's what that verse means. We can't have both. We can't both love God and love the world. Or as Jesus said, Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What are the two masters, Jesus? You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and mammon. A lot of translations these days go with money instead of mammon, but mammon's a better word, even though we don't use it very much in our our parlance. Uh, Mammon is a, a word that's actually closer to what John's talking about when John talks about the world. Because mammon includes money and what money can buy, which is why a lot of translations go with money. But really, it's, it's bigger. It's really more this idea of, of desires. And so, uh, and, so John, and so Jesus was saying, we can't love both God and the world. We can't have both. And so what we have there in verse 15 is, is a motivation, right? It's a pretty big motivation. We, we might wish we could have our cake and eat it too, as the old saying goes, uh, but God says you can't. You can't. We can either love him or we can love this world system and all of its rebellion against God, but we can't love both. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, The other reason we we shouldn't love the world is that the world doesn't deserve it. The world is not worthy of our love. That's what verse 17 says. Uh, He says, the world is passing away. Along with its desires, right? That from verse 16, the world and and those desires uh, is passing away. But whoever does the will of God, starting with, well, verses 7 through 11, right? That's why the two are connected. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. The world doesn't last, John says. The money, the pleasures, the entertainment, the romance, the sex, the achievement, the power, the control, they don't last probably a little morbid but uh, one of the things i look forward to every january is uh, world magazine's annual obituary section world magazine publishes uh and it goes on for pages it's like 12 14 sometimes 15 pages and all it is is just lists of well-known it's just a list chronological They start in the january of the previous year and they go all the way through december and they just give a little two or two sentence bio usually of well-known people who had died the year before and, and they're, they're all people who, you know maybe you don't recognize all of them, but they're all noteworthy people. And so some of them are beautiful people. Some of them are powerful people, wealthy people, famous people, brilliant people. Page after page after page after page. And they all come from different places and they lead very, they led very different lives, but they all have one thing in common. They all passed away. They all passed away. And when they did, it didn't matter. To me, it's like a, it's almost a devotional kind of meditation to read through it. Uh, It didn't matter how beautiful or powerful or wealthy or famous or brilliant they were in life. At that point, the only thing that mattered is whether they knew Jesus. You may have sold a hundred million records, but if you don't know Jesus, none of it matters. Verse 17, the world and everything in it is passing away. Uh, it reminds me of a, of a poem, uh, and I'll bet many of you have run into this, it's been around a long time, it was written in the late 1800s by a missionary, a missionary named Charles Studd, and I was interested to read about this guy, he was two things, he was a highly regarded cricket player, kind of like a modern day baseball star, and he was a missionary, and he kind of gave up the one for the other, he's one of those people. And he wrote this poem, it was called Only One Life. Only One Life. It's actually a long poem, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you could look it up online. Just Google Charles Studd, two D's, S-T-U-D-D, Only One Life, you'll find it. Uh, The last stanza makes pretty clear, though, what he's doing. Here's the last stanza. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll 'Twas worth it all. Only one life, this is part, you've probably seen on plaques or cards. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's what verse 17 says. Verses 15 through 17. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When we come to Jesus, Jesus changes everything. That's the point of this bigger section when you take it as a big section. Uh, Beginning with the things that we love. Beginning with what we love. Jesus transforms from the inside out. I don't want us to, to conclude from this that this is something we have to try real hard to do. He does it, and then we cooperate with his work. He transforms our affections. He changes the things we love, which is why and how we're able to stop loving the world and start loving one another. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we pray that you would help us with both of these. We thank you that you love us. We thank you Uh, that you loved us before we ever thought to love you or to love each other. We thank you that you are so much better than the world, uh, that you offer us eternal life where the world only offers us a passing life. Uh, And yet you know we are flesh and you know we struggle with these things. And so I want to pray for myself and each one of us who is hearing this sermon that you would help us, uh, help us to to stop loving the world. Uh, You know the areas different ones of us struggle with, Lord. Help us with those things. Help us uh, with the ones that are the hardest for us. Uh, to, to to keep fighting, to press on, to lean in the power of your Holy Spirit and to allow you to transform us so that we stop loving the world. And, uh, and for the things that maybe come to us a little easier, shore those up and help us to, to continue to be faithful in those areas too. And then Lord, help us love each other. And, and I, I, it is, it's a core value of our church. It's something we do well. Help us to keep growing in it. Help us to love each other all the more as the church changes, as new people come. Help us to love them and them to love us. And, and just in all of it, may Jesus Christ be be praised and glorified and demonstrated. May we as a church be known as a church where they love one another, just like Jesus told them to do. That's our prayer, Lord. We pray it in in Jesus' name. Amen.